Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen O'Sullivan and I am the host of this show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders and experts in the field of leadership of self and others, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past potential fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. We want you to be you, to be at your best and to show up in the most authentic way. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello, hello, everybody. Have you ever wondered what takes your business from nay to yay? Or perhaps you were wondering what really pushes, in the nicest possible way, your team members to real success? Or perhaps you're asking yourself, how can we build a high-achieving mindset within our team and the wider organization that really takes us all to the next level. And quite often, we don't really start with ourselves. Getting some feedback on the impact we have on others, the behaviors we encourage and we demonstrate, the support we offer to others, because at least in my experience in the past, I have been far more focused on getting the job done, achieving the goals, surviving the day from time to time as well. I know it sounds a tad dramatic, but that was the case. There was so much going on, so much change at the same time that this was just really at the bottom of the list. And yet, once you stop, once you listen more, once you see patterns, once you help understand truly, uh, help truly understand your customers, for example, you will notice the shift that this creates in business. And today I couldn't have invited a better guest to talk about all of this, how to create great businesses, how to turn them into a real success, how to build teams that work effectively together. And that includes having some courageous and challenging conversations as well. He talks about complexity and not just what it means, but how to break through complexity. He uh, talks about really stepping into a high achieving mindset of servant leadership. What does high achieving servant leadership mean? What do high achieving servant leaders demonstrate and do what they don't do? And how to push the right buttons with more intention in your day-to-day -day work as leaders. It is just amazing to hear about some of his vulnerable stories that triggered him to step more into servant leadership instead of being this highly authoritative leader who makes other people cry, spoiler alert, uh, who helped him along the way. What triggered those changes? And as the cherry on top of the cake, he also shares some really valuable insights into marketing, what marketing means, how it is important for a business and how we all can become better marketers. So without further ado, let me introduce Kurt earlier to you today. He is a globally recognized 10 times marketer, operator, and speaker. 
He has built and run early stage companies as well as those over $500 million in annual revenue. He assembled teams across six continents, been part of the small team leading an IPO and participated in dozens of acquisitions. His unique experience being inside hundreds of high growth companies with the opportunity to analyze, scale, make changes of leadership and oversee operations has labeled him the king of scaling businesses. Well, it's time to hand over to Kurt really and to listen to his story. So enjoy the conversation and I'll speak to you again in a moment. Hello and welcome Kurt, 7am your time. Good morning to you. Hey, thank you for having me. I want to share it with the listeners actually where you are because I can see it at the moment, but it's just fantastic. I, I see the background is pretty dark, but I saw some amazing trees earlier on and you're surrounded by basically timber and, and little trees in, on your terrace. But you are the better one to describe it. I'm on the top of a mountain right now where uh, we don't own, uh, well, we, we own a good bit of property, but we're the only house for probably maybe two kilometers in any one direction. Uh, and so there's a valley behind me that may open up uh, during uh, our conversation as the sun continues to rise. It makes me feel calm all right away and I can't even see it yet. Um, so thank you for bringing this calm into the conversation. And actually, wellness is a really important um, topic for me, in particular leadership uh, wellness when we go through challenging times and everything seems to become a little bit too much, how we can get ourselves back into a place where we are connected with ourselves. And I just asked you this question before I hit the record button. Uh, what's the impact of that environment on you? It's great because so much of what I do, especially from a leadership perspective, it's all knowledge work. And up here, especially owning a good bit of property, there's a lot of physical work I have to do. And so those are things you have to do with your hands, with a shovel, with an ax. And uh, it's it's really nice to be able to look back. I mean, leadership and development and we're growing companies. I mean, you may work for six months and really not see anything happen or not anything tangible sometimes. But here you, you go out with an ax, you cut down a tree, you mow a couple of acres down at the bottom part of the property. And it's like that's completed at the end of it. So it's very therapeutic. I, I have to say I love gardening. Never realized that I would ever say that. But I really love it for all the reasons you've just mentioned. And it gets me into flow right away as well. I can lose track of time and thoughts and, and anything really. Yeah, we actually, because we're uh, whereas we're leading into winter, I think we probably have maybe 250 to 300 bulbs up here to plant this trip or the next trip up. So. So for the same type of reason that I didn't realize it originally. Uh, when I was younger, I used to hate having to do uh, yard work for my parents. I did had built up a landscaping company when, starting when I was uh, 13. Uh, that ended up selling when I went to college. It, it grew pretty large. But uh, but now I do it just, just for fun for the same reasons you mentioned. So it's a nice segue, actually, into your introduction and some of the key themes we will be delving into today. When I was 13, I had a landscaping company and you had a business before that, didn't you? Well, I actually, when I was 13, I started uh, I started with two right then. I didn't technically have the business and I would say until I was 14 because I had to uh, form two uh, LLCs in the U.S. because I was going to have to pay enough payroll taxes and I had no idea um, that that was a thing. I just knew how to sell and operate. It's still incredible. And I think it's fair to say you have been an entrepreneur and innovator from a very, very young age. However, if you were to describe your role slash roles nowadays, what is it you do on a day-to-day -day professional basis? 
I usually come in a company as, as a chief marketing officer, uh, sometimes as a chief strategy officer. For, for me, marketing takes everything. It kind of is that umbrella that most companies should think about is anything from before somebody knows about your brand or your company until 10 years after they've been a repeat customer. So, so marketing is kind of that overall umbrella. And so I will usually come in as a chief marketing officer, or chief strategy officer for established companies. So companies maybe 50 million to about 400 million a year in annual revenue. Usually on the tech side, I, t- I tend to do very well uh, with complex technology and seeing how the pieces are going to come together in five or six years long before anyone else does. And, and we come back to that point in a moment. I want to pick up on the word complex for a moment because complexity is, is a topic that fascinates me. So what does complex complexity mean to you, in particular in the technology space? Well, I mean, even like technology, marketing specifically, but the technology bit of there is like everybody wants to rank on Google. And so, so many people that are marketers or SEOs, they're chasing the latest trend. And so when Google makes a major change, like they lose 30 to 70% or 90% of their traffic and they act like they act like Google did something where it's like, well, well, no, they, they weren't real marketers. They weren't looking at what's happening. Um, I'm in a group with a gentleman named Corey uh, Tuberg out of Turkey. All of us have read probably 150 Google and uh, Microsoft patents in the last year, as well as every research paper that's come out. We have a Google Drive we share and we dump those into it when we read something and we put it out there because like, that's a complexity. When you think about like technology as a business or a consumer, think about Google. Like Google doesn't just go out and change something willy nilly. They, if they patent stuff because they want other people to not do it. Um, but they don't just have one patent. They have thousands of patents. And then they'll do research papers on it because some of those things are public and some aren't. And sometimes they'll present at a conference. Well, I figure if they've done all three of those things, that's a meaningful part of their algorithm. But it's only one. So you have to read all of these pieces. And then your brain has to go through and say, okay, well, how to, how how would somebody put all of these pieces together and and I'm writing content, I'm doing marketing for that. So when Google makes a major change, like in that case, it doesn't shock me. It doesn't shock the companies that I work with. Like our traffic continues to go up, but because you think about all of those complexities that Google would take in place and you ch- it changes the thinking. Google will stay with the Google rankings. Everybody thinks as a business, it says, I want to rank first, second or third on Google. Well, what does Google want? They only want two things. They, they want to make money and they want people to keep coming back. So it has to be good quality. Well, to make money, that's after all expensive. Well, they're, they're going out and crawling the entire internet. So a very important thing for them and a shift over the last seven years, if you read through their patents research papers is how do they, how do they go out and crawl all of the data on the internet in the most efficient way to get the best answer for you, Kathleen? And so it's not just finding the best answer. It's a return on investment that they're coding into their system because they're spending billions of dollars on servers alone, not even counting software engineers. And so how do they go out and find the best information on leadership and do it at the least cost for them so that they can make the most money? Well, that changes how you think about writing content, how you think about authority from a computer's perspective. While we all still very much have to answer, a person is going to read it if you rank first, second or third. So ultimately, that's that's your customer. Where does your knowledge, curiosity, and passion for data, marketing, technology, and our counter leadership come from? My dad, I'd say, was a was a generalist. He was very intelligent with um, a couple of very specific areas. But I think it was modeled for me early on that it's rare for us to hear somebody like a Picasso or somebody that's really good at just one thing. 
usually the people that have gone very far and are really good at one thing, if you dig in and you get to know them, they're actually really good on a broad range of topics. And they just kind of have this T frame where there's two or three channels that they go very, very deep in. And so I, that was modeled for me earlier. And it's also who I choose to surround myself with. So I have friends that kind of do the same things. We're interested in a lot of very different topics. Uh, I took two years where I don't, for some reason, I got very much into astrophysics and I, I read every white paper that NASA had publicly available at that time and a few others I got my hands on. My wife at this point, uh, so we're in no, uh, almost in November, still in October, she just passed 140 books read this year. Wow, so, 140. Like, that's a lot. Yeah. So like she, 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 you know, and, and, and some are business, most around kids or our households and stuff is like, she's re uh, just finished a book on the, the boy crisis. I think that's the second or third books on raising boys and changes in society um, that she's read. And she'll probably read a couple more of that. So it would never assume that one author, whether it's a white paper, patent or book is accurate and go, mm -hmm. well, if you want to know something, go read eight books on the subject and then figure out what you actually believe. For some reason, that's the way that I've always approached knowledge or whatnot. Oh, we can see a little bit of the mountains yes. starting to appear over here. Yeah, they are coming. Here we go. It's <laughs> just really stunning. It's lovely. You just shared about reading this amount of books in a year like it was nothing. And then you mentioned as a side note, you know, with the kids, with the household and so on and so forth, just reading 140 books. This is incredible. And you have interests, you have work, you are mentoring people. If I now start to focus on you, how do you bring it all together? What's your secret? You have to be very intentional with your time. So I can, I did bring, I bring, brought product management and project management kind of to our marriage. Um, originally, my wife, thankfully, is dove straight, straight into that. Uh, we got, we got married just a couple of weeks after we got engaged and uh she didn't know. We didn't know how that was going to be possible. We were actually up here in the mountains and we um, we found a resort that was going to be available in just a very short amount of time. And I had to leave for New York for a funding trip the next day. And uh, she's like, can, can we do, or maybe two days later, and she goes, do you think we can do this? And I was like, just sign up for the date. We'll get it done. And between the plane ride and that, the night after meeting with investors in New York, um, I sent her a Trello board. She had no idea what Trello was at the time. And I said, here's everything that needs to take place. I've assigned a bunch of things to you. Let's get started. And she calls me and she says, what is this? I said, I found three major lists of all the things you need to do for planning a wedding, big or small, because uh, we were having a smaller family wedding. And I said, I synthesized the three lists. I put them all into one, one list, into categories, and I figured this is what needs to be done. And we got it all done. It wasn't stressful whatsoever. And we kind of realized we could approach the whole, like our lives that way. And so we don't, we don't pack our whole our schedule that way. But a lot of people are very conscious on budgeting. And so they'll, they'll budget $0, like they want to make sure every dollar in their, in their budget at their company or the personal budget is taken care of. My wife and I try to do that with our skills and our time as well. Like there are times where I will go help a friend move because that's what you do. But, but, but going in, um, going in to, a, to another country and helping build a house for a week really isn't a good use of what all God's given me. And so because of my skills, it may be much better use for me to take that week and do something else to help the organization. And so we really kind of try to plan out from an intentional perspective, what do we do with our, our money? What do we do with our time? And what do we do with our resources? And the resources and our skills and time very much overlap, but not always. First of all, the Trello board for the wedding planning is the most romantic thing I've ever heard of. 
serious <laughs> I consolidated all those lists in one Trello board and we made it happen. <laughs> Honestly, my husband would fall off his chair right now because as soon as I mentioned the word organizing or planning, he runs. That's what I'm experiencing here. So it's very, very different. <laughs> but I'm glad you made it happen. Before we move on to leadership in more detail, growing businesses that you support, I want to go a little bit more into your past or a little bit more, quite a bit more, like when you were 13, 14 and starting to become this early entrepreneur influenced by your dad uh, as well. I mean, those are the years from my perspective where you don't yet think about failure too much and making mistakes. You just go for it, don't you? Um, how how was it for you? How did you build your first adventures in entrepreneurship? Not just drove you, but perhaps what sometimes held you back. But most importantly, what were your learnings out of all of these adventures? Safety is a big thing for allowing people to to try things uh, and some things that work, but but finding things that work. Uh, I did not. I, I still don't necessarily know where my dad was behind the scenes. Um, if I had screwed up with taxes and forming LLCs. I don't, I think he would have stepped in, but I don't know. I felt safe at the time. The reason I started the LLC was because my dad just, he mentioned to me, that like, you're going to have to pay taxes or you will go to jail. You need to find an accountant. And that's, that was really the only conversation. Now, knowing him for many years before he passed, then I'm sure he was checking in the background. He may have even spoken to the accountant that I ended up choosing, but he was not part of me finding a list of accountants, interviewing accountants, picking somebody like, so he may have been behind the scenes doing that, and I'm sure he was, but um, I felt safe as a kid to go and figure that out. And I think that's very important at all levels for people is knowing that somebody else kind of has your back to some degree. So that, that's a little bit of it. And you mentioned I'm an entrepreneur. I've started a couple, I mean, a number of things from scratch. I mean, to some degree, like I do find small service businesses, lawn mowing, cutting hair, plumbing, like is entrepreneurial, but but so much there is like I would build myself as an operator. I'm really good at systematizing things, and then just knowing where do I add, what what dials do I turn more knobs do, uh, knobs do I move, and so that's why I found my way into to scaling companies so much. And I didn't realize that at the time. Um, and I said, I mean, knowing from a safety perspective, it it wasn't just um, that my dad was behind the scenes. There were things where he did step in. Technically, I had three jobs when I was 14. So I had a company with my brother that we worked on and continued to grow for years, became a large e-commerce site, that lawn care. And then I ended up doing some stuff with uh, with the U.S. government because I got I got caught hacking the servers. My dad had security clearance in Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama. And I was uh, offered um, to help him with, uh, with some of the security issues or uh, get into trouble. And uh, I did find out later my dad brokered much of that deal so that I had an options as opposed to just getting in trouble. <laughs> So what brought you into hacking? I was cu I was just always curious. I, I mean, I had computers. I'm I, I'm I, I'm young enough and old enough, but you know, from there's a day when computers were getting started, and if you wanted uh, games, you could pay for a game or you could buy a book and code it yourself because there was actually code in there to write out. And so uh, people didn't care a lot about security at those days, and so they kind of assumed, like in that case. Once you got onto base, because uh, Redstone Arsenal Huntsville, which is where NASA does uh, NASA does a lot of their uh, rocket development, uh, Marshall Flight Center is there. They kind of figured once you were on base, you were good. Well, but you also got to bring your kids on at times. And so my dad had clearance. I didn't. And 
curiosity is what got me uh, interested in hacking. So, so if you now reflect up on your first, uh, you keep using the word adventurous in this case as an operator. What what were your key takeaways from those experiences? That's a great question. Especially at that time, and I didn't realize it later, I was really chasing attention and acclaim from people. Um, When I hacked, you know, the first dozen servers, I was like, well, I I bet it'll be it'll be much cooler if I if I if I can tell people I I did 100 plus and I did 100. And I was like, okay, how many more systems could I hack? Uh, And I ended up being 232 servers uh, or government systems at the time. It was actually a very negative thing that I was learning at the time, which was the more I accomplish, the more attention I get out of people. And I thought that that was a good thing. Um, And so I very much went through into my early 30s with, hey, when I'm this top person overperforming everybody else, then people will like me, as opposed to what I've kind of learned now is something very different. And so that really wasn't healthy. I look back at times. And so like, um, what I learned at that time, and I learned it both when I was young and then uh, in my early companies, and then as I continued to grow teams, I thought if one per- if if I needed to push the team to do as much as possible in the shortest amount of time. So if one person cried, I was the uh, and then then that was them. If the whole team cried, well then that was me, and I dialed it, dialed it up to eleven, and I, their max was nine or ten, and I need to pull back the stress level and pushing them just a little bit more. I didn't know, but that's what I was actually learning at the time. Um, was a very aggressive, authoritative, push as hard as you possibly can mentality. And that was one of the reasons why I said we need to talk on the podcast because you were so <laughs> open about being this leader who makes people cry. And I, I'm pretty sure uh, to the listeners out there, you can all imagine that has changed. That's also a reason why we're here together. But I'm curious to, to learn more about this approach and thinking that only if I get to a certain stage, to a certain level, if I'm being successful, I will get attention. And, ooh, I'm making people cry, which sounded almost like a motivator as well. So, so where's the connection here? Um, that's a great question. I, very much what I cared about was, uh, I mean, I would have called at that time, you know, people that were working for me, um, in some cases, even people working alongside of me. I mean, they were minions. They were resources. I may have, may have gone out to, you know, gone out to beers with somebody after work, but I didn't, I didn't at that time think about people as a person. I mean, it was not rare in our company to have divorces and affairs and drug pro- and alcohol problems that happen. And then those people just kind of fell to the wayside. I mean, very much at a big growing company. I mean, we took a company from 85 million a year in revenue to 1.44 billion in, in SaaS and software and data revenue. Uh, and then we, with going public. And it was like, at that point, like we had that environment and a, a lot of people, like they work in companies like this now where they've worked in a company they don't ever want to go back. Like if somebody chose to leave or if we fired somebody, they were basically dead to us. It was an unofficial rule. You could never mention their their names like in the company again, unless they happen to be at a customer that you needed to still be friendly with them because like we were trying to grow things as quickly as possible. And so because of that, like if people cried and it wasn't that they couldn't keep up, well, then they just left and we didn't have to think about them anymore, really. And I didn't realize that at the time, but so many companies actually operate that way. It sounds a little bit like the the show Succession. Out, yeah. off you go. You know, we yeah. need to refocus. So at some point, obviously that shifted. 
because when I uh, look at your talks nowadays, when you talk about, uh, I, I watched one about servant leadership, for example, mm. then there's a very different cut that I see and hear in particular. But I'm imagining that's been a road to change and of change. Who has influenced your change? It's been a road, but I mean, it was it was pretty much, I mean, it was a big triggering event that happened as well. And so, uh, you're right, I do speak a lot about servant leadership, but I actually haven't backed off kind of the high achieving, wanting to accomplish things so much. I'm just accomplishing things for a different reason. And, I, and I've realized that the way that I was leading actually led to much, maybe I had some higher, very short term, like one month type of growth things, but it really hindered the long term growth. So like leaders that are thoracratic and really leading the way that I used to, what they don't realize is, what do you think happens when that very successful individual contributor or vice president at your company, what do you think happens when his or her marriage goes on the rocks or their mom gets cancer? And if they were the best performer in your company, well, maybe things are going to slow down for a little, if it's a marriage, like that doesn't trail on for a good while. If, if, it's a, if it's a medical thing at home, maybe it's only three to four months. What if you look at the eight or 10 years that that person has been a high performer or may continue to be a high performer, wouldn't you definitely take giving them, giving them even a full sabbatical for, for a quarter or having them at less productivity to have them still on the team? But authoritarian leaders don't think like that. Mm -hmm. And so I've, some of it is I did have a big triggering event we can talk about, but I've also realized it was like, I've had people on my team where it's like, wait a second, like. I'll give you 60 days off just to go deal with something that's come up in your family life because I want you on the team long-term. And that's been the best thing from a productivity perspective and makes the company resilient. Cause it's like, nobody, like you can't grow a company today. I mean, you can, but like on 40 hours, 50 hours consistently, there's going to be these ebbs and flows. And so I want my team to be focused on outcomes and I kind of want them to go to war for me. I don't want them to just show up for eight hours on a given day. I want them to see the mountaintop we're trying to go to and, and know that their part, whether they're the janitor or the chief revenue officer, is critically important. I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm also a strong believer in you bring your whole person to work. Right. And there are loads of white papers out there as well about this topic that our professional life may impact our personal life and vice versa. Yet there are still so many managers I talk to who say, I don't want to hear anything about the personal issues of my people and nor will I share any of mine. Appreciating, obviously, on my end that there are different amounts of information you may want to share and receive, right? Um, right. I think it's important to consider the whole person. Yeah. I would love to hear your reflections a, on the whole person principle and if you don't mind sharing your triggering event as well, because these this awareness level doesn't come from nowhere. Right. Well, my triggering event, actually, I had, I had three things that happened kind of all together. Um, to, uh, and, and they happen all in less than 48 hours. And so one, I lost a hundred million. I was part of the, the small three person deal team that lost a hundred million dollar plus uh, annual uh, deal. And in my mind, that that was just going to blackball my career. And so it ended up not, we, we came back and won the deal a couple, a number of uh, maybe two years, two and a half years later. But um, when you lose a deal and there's three people working on it, it's your fault. You can't point to other people. And so uh, that happened. And so for somebody who's chasing success and awards and gets called out at all the board meetings for, for, for numbers and the marketing growth, like that was a major thing. I found out my, uh, my wife at the time 
um, had been, and she had had an affair earlier, uh, earlier in her marriage, found out that while it hadn't ended three years beforehand, it was still going on. And so almost our entire marriage, uh, she had been in an affair and with somebody that we knew. So that was a personal thing that came in. And then I got a call, uh, I got a call from my dad that he had a, a terminal illness that he had been diagnosed with and didn't know how many years he was going to have left at that time. Uh, ended up kind of going through some remission, but all three of those things happened together. And I just, I just, I just cracked. And so that, that was what I kind of needed. I had a big spiritual change at that time as well. But I called my mentor at the time. I, I was crying. I told him a little about, about, about the personal things. And I told him about the business deal. And uh, I was like, and, and nobody cares about any of these things. I told, told a couple people at work, nobody cares about the personal stuff, the work stuff. People don't even want to talk about it. Why? And he said, Kurt, you're an asshole. And we talked through that a little bit more. Uh, nobody ever told me anything like that or not in a way that I would have heard it. And so it may have been the, the life events that happened or it may have been how Don was telling me. So I got done talking with him. I, I did hear a little bit of that and I called my mother. Uh, and my mother is that person in the family that no matter who is being kind of attacked or anything in the family and anything, she's always going to defend you. Dad was saying something about me, she'd defend me. If I was saying something about my dad and she would just always defend everybody. And her initial thing when I told her, I said, this is what Don just told, Donald just told me. She goes, well, well, you are an asshole. My mom never told me anything like that. And I was like, oh my, like, why haven't you ever told me this? She goes, because you never would have heard it before. And so um, that, that made me realize a lot. And, and uh, that, like it, in 30 seconds, I just got all this wave of people crying at work. And like, I've just told people about these major things. My dad's going to die. And like somebody literally walked out of my office. They just didn't care that much. And um, I was like, huh, maybe I'm the problem. So that was kind of my triggering events for realizing things. So we had a huge bit of kind of just change at that point. Um, I, it didn't change me wanting to hit numbers necessarily, but I didn't want to be the a-hole. So. so so what did you do about it? I started looking at, well, I realized at that point that a lot had happened in my life. It, it was a journey that happened. That was kind of the triggering event over the next probably year and a half, a lot of people didn't know it, but I mean, I was really good at my job. Uh, when I ended up finally finally leaving that company, they uh, they hired multiple people to replace uh, to replace my roles, um, and uh, I probably worked four and a half to maybe five hours a week for like a year and a half or so, uh, and still got promoted during the time period as well. And so, but and so during that time, I'm realizing I'm dealing with things with my uh, with 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 a marriage that's breaking up and to your point about the whole person i realized a lot and i'd replay a lot of the people that had left the company people still worked for me and i was like nobody cared about who i w uh, what was going on with me i was still hitting numbers so the that's all the company really cared about but i felt very lonely and so i started shifting about how do i how could i change things with my team to both give them flexibility when things come up caring about outcomes and not hours and realizing to your point that there is a whole person that's going on. And so it was only actually after I left that company that I really, that things drastically changed. Cause when you, when you join a new organization, you can, it's one thing to, to have a change that people see and the team starts to change. It's another thing to be able to just start fresh from a leadership perspective as well. It's definitely helpful in those moments, but I'm also trying to put myself ever so slightly in your shoes um, with all of these three, life events happening at the same time and 
I can only imagine how messy it might feel in this moment. You're kind yeah. of rediscovering yourself as well, perhaps questioning your identity and your way of being. You now have this information. You're an asshole. You clearly don't want to be one. And now what? <laughs> right? And I can only imagine that it might be hard to do it on your own, even though stepping into a new organization might help. So for example, you mentioned you had a mentor on your side, your mom gave you that feedback. So, so how important was a support network in that situation? Much more so when I left and it, it was from a, it was meant, uh, some mentors that helped with it. And so um, I ha I've had a number of mentors over time uh, that mentor I mentioned at the time um, with, that was only for a period. I believe you, you mentor or coach for a, for a time period and it's better to set kind of the, the bookend on that, you can always extend it. But um, when I ended up leaving that organization, we had had a CEO that joined one and was very helpful in my career early on named Judson Green, who is the former president of Disney theme parks. And so uh, I was kind of knighted as one of 10 people um, to get in a close relationship with him under some certain guide uh, guidelines. And then um, after, after a year, I was one of two that still held by the guidelines well, that was great while he was there. He ended up retiring finally uh, shortly after we had gone public. And uh, when I left, he reached back out. And so we, we had a mentoring relationship at that time period that was very private. Uh, private. A number of people knew about it, but I raised money for a company. We helped sell another, I helped sell another company. And he, he never wanted to help. He helped some industry contacts, but he didn't want that to be public. He was like, I'm going to help you be a better leader going forward because I see something different happening in you. And so he would coach me through a lot of that. And pointed me on a few things to, that where I kind of started to add on this high achieving servant leadership. I read a ton of books about leadership. I uh, actually did not like any of the uh, the books on servant leadership of the probably 20 or so that I had read. I couldn't in good intention give them to most business people. And so there, there's two books that have come out that, uh, that I, I, I do like more now. But uh, Jetson gave me a, a different kind of approach about how to how to talk with people and work with people for to build both something better, faster, and more resilient. And I'm really glad that you mentioned actually some slight criticism of servant leadership books. I would expand it and say, I'm quite critical of servant leadership, full stop. And you highlighted the um, slight addition of high achieving servant leadership. So yeah. tell us a little bit more about it. What does it mean to you and how can we become high achieving servant leaders? Yeah. So, uh, basically, I'll answer with two in two different uh, quick legs. One, I I think too many people complicate leadership. I, there's mm -hmm. tons of different flavors about how you can implement uh, leadership and what styles are, but there's really only two types of leadership to me. There's an authoritarian leader, and that's the person that ultimately says, "Do what I say, how I do it, or there's the door, and you're going to be fired." To some degree, like you know, you never care if your top salesperson doesn't do if he or she doesn't doesn't follow your scale because they're the top salesperson. But everybody else, like you got to do exactly what I say. And so, even though they may be nice people, there's still that underlying "do what I said, how I said to do it, or I'm going to fire you." And the other side is very binary. The servant leader to me says, "Look, my job is to find the outcomes for the company, for the organizations, for the team, and my job then." is to serve you as the person that I've hired on the team. The moment you hire one person, you're not making a lot of decisions. You're not doing a lot of work. So my job as that servant leader is to not tell you exactly what to do. My job is to tell you the outcomes I want, tell you what I would like you to do, but then serve you to hit the outcomes as quickly as possible in the best way. So that's that's kind of, and, and then you can implement both of those in different ways. There's really nice 
authoritarian leaders and that I talked to a lot of them and I'll come into their organizations. And so I was talking to, uh, talking to a leader uh, about three months ago, leads a hundred million dollars SaaS based company in the U S he, he would have said that he was a servant leader and he's he's nice. And you talk to his people. We did this audit to go through just a week of his life. And he realized he was the authoritative leader and that people may not have been openly scared of him, but people were doing what he said, how he did it. And he was holding back a lot of growth in their company. Cause to me, it's, it is that binary. Well, when you go from that, then you go, okay, well, I want to learn about servant leadership. So he said, I went on, I read 20 books on servant leadership. And the problem that I had with them and why I I'd say I am a servant leader, but I always bolt on and I write about high achieving servant leadership is of those 20 books, every book that I read underlying it was either a faith-based element, which I'm a strong Jesus follower. There's nothing wrong with that coming at it that way, but it was written at, they weren't written as business books. They were written from a faith perspective, a Judeo-Christian perspective, a Muslim perspective, or just a humanitarian moral perspective that said, you need to be a servant leader. If you really read through that, you need to be a servant leader because this is how you should treat people. Like, okay, but but I want to make money. And so I, I struggle with this thing in, in coming into teams because I do believe, and I've seen it myself repeatedly, that I can build something better and faster following servant leadership. But in good conscience, I couldn't just walk into their authoritative leader and go, read this book or read this five, these five books and it'll make business sense to you. And so if they didn't have that moral background to, to treat people differently, there wasn't a book for that. And there's there's two books that do kind of cover it, but that's why I always talk about high achieving servant leadership because too many people I feel like have been burned. They've gone out and read a book on servant leadership and they're like, well, okay, I, I believe I should maybe treat people better, but I want my company to grow faster. So they don't follow the book at all. And you said this was one of the directions those books went into, this faith-based, moral-based yeah. servant leadership. What were other aspects that you read about that don't quite They're work not, for I business? mean, they don't always say that directly. I mean, some are very clear in that way. There's a, there's a, a lot of Judeo-Christian books uh, or books that are written from servant leadership that, that will call that out. The more popular ones don't, but if you if you learn about the people below behind them, you're going to find that as a strong component from them. But they, if you just read the book and the words in the books, there's not a business reason usually behind it. I mean, some people will talk about a little bit of their background, but I'm like, okay, that worked for you. Well, I can point to the theocratic leader and find us the person that it worked that that style of leadership worked for them. And I was like, I don't like one. I don't like samples of one or samples of five. I want to see samples of 500. And those cases just weren't shown in those books. As opposed to a little bit more recently now, it, it's not as prescriptive about how to be a servant leader. There's a little bit of that, but Cheryl Backhelder wrote a book. She was the turnaround CEO for Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, a franchise in the United States that was near bankruptcy when, when she became CEO. And so she walks through two things that I find were very were very appealing to me. One, she walked through pushing back against the board, want them wanting to hit numbers, but her realizing to hit the numbers, they needed to go serve people in their company and how to do that. And and so she walks that through. But the second bit, and which is real leadership to me, is she walks through how dozens upon dozens of people that worked for her and multiple layers down in the organization, what they've done at other companies following the same servant leadership style in changing how they how, how they try to grow grow businesses. Well, that's a leader to me. I mean, so many people, uh, you know, uh, you know, reference like good to great as a book. Well, the problem with Jim's book is if you go look through and you do the research about the companies that he mentions in the book, 
90% of them failed when they went to their next round of leadership and management. Well, that's not a successful style. It was a great selling book, but that doesn't, that's not something that's repeatedly successful, yeah. at least in the, in the samples that he chose to pull out. And so Cheryl's example is different. Joel Manby has a book that's, that's very similar. He has a strong faith component in it, but, but he very much talks about that's how they grew Saab. It's how they grew Hershen Family Entertainment, which is a $600 million family-based business here in the United States. I had to had to giggle a little bit because I have two copies off from Good to Great in my bookshelf <laughs> behind me, by the way. And I often think we are missing out on how organizations are changing, how the world yeah. around us is changing, and on taking stock from time to time in terms of what does servant leadership or leadership in general mean for us nowadays? Generations change, the workforce in general changes, and so on and so forth. And so just relying on great books that have been written in the 90s, 80s, isn't the way forward. That's for me a big one. Right. Yeah. Servant leadership, the way I learned about it many years ago, was all about being there in service of your people. Yes. Right. And what for? And how do the people understand? You have those meaningful con uh, conversations about what are we trying to achieve together for you, for the organization, for us as a team? What's in it for all of us here? And therefore, what is it you really need? And servant leadership has often been communicated to me as we are avoiding the uncomfortable truth. No, it's a massive part of it. You have to speak openly and truthfully. And to come back to this leader you mentioned earlier, who I would love to uh, talk a little bit more about it when you said, he has been a nice autocratic leader, basically, yes. is about do people feel safe around right. a leader to be able to speak up about topics that feel tough to speak up about, but they right. help us grow. Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on-demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. There's two different types of topics to uh, talk I mean, that, that people should feel safe to come up with. And so one you mentioned earlier about like how much you share personal at work. Well, I share a lot about uh, a lot of personal work, but not everybody's okay with that. And so you have to have an environment and, and allow people uh, where people feel safe, but they're also they get to choose how much they share. And so like I had a gentleman that worked for me that um, he, he was big on, on believing, and he would say this too, that you keep work and personal separate. And we, we shifted a good bit of that, but he would never open up too much about his personal. He would just say he had something major going on at home or uh, he had a relationship thing going on. Um, he was actually divorced for six months before I finally asked because he would never would have shared that type of information. I said, you haven't mentioned your wife in a while or like kind of gone out to do some personal things. I know you don't like to share too much. And you mentioned that, you know, you had a move, but are you still married? And you don't have to answer that. I'm, I'm just curious because I care about you and you seem stressed at work. And he did answer yes. And that uh, followed by, I really not like to not talk about that. And I respected that. 
but I, from a work perspective, he, he was a little bit more sporadic at work and I needed to know just enough about how else I could kind of serve him because he was a high performer on the team. So, but he never shared too much of what was going on. Now he's not, doesn't work for me anymore. He shares a good bit more because I'm helping him uh, with some introductions on some other things, but people will share more. Some people will share less. You have to give them the space for that. But on the authoritative leaders, your point about safe, being safe, so the authoritative leaders, they're often very high performers themselves, and they often have a very good way of doing certain things. I mean, it's rare for me to come in on, uh, with a lot of different roles on the team and not be able to do it somewhat better. I mean, I'm, a, I'm good at a lot of things. I don't typically give a lot of feedback unless it's like a, a magnitude order kind of change on that. But you have to provide an environment, even if you could do something better or you have a great idea where your team feels comfortable bringing up places where you might be wrong or gut feels that they have about the company. Because when I'll go through an, with an audit, like I mentioned, that that, that uh, CEO, founding CEO of a company that's not worth more than a, or doing more than $100 million a year in sales. And it's rare to continue being the CEO when you grow up. Usually you're good from zero to one or zero to 10 million. And he's seen it, seen this through. One of the things that was really key to him is he thought he was making most of the decisions on the leadership team. And he's he was good. And so we started to walk through the decisions that were actually being made within the company, just to his one level below him and the next level down. And we actually started to document them. And just the ones that we that we could easily get. And he started we he started to quantify because he thought he probably made 80 to 90 percent of the major decisions that affected growth and company and personnel and major customer decisions. And he realized instead of making 90 to 95 percent, he was making well less than he was he was not even involved in less than five percent of the decisions. Because that's what happens when you have a company of that size. You have a chief revenue officer, chief people officer, and you have an accountant. And when you start going through all the decisions that they're making, and what he realized was he thought he was being very involved, even though he was super nice. The problem that happened and that this is what Judson Green told uh, started my career like this, this amplification was Judson realized something at Disney. And so he came to me as a sole contributor, 10 uh, or nine other sole contributors. And Judson told me, look, Kurt, I will help you in your career, but I need something for I need something from you. And there's two rules that he had for us. He said one, and it was all based on the thing that he knew that good information tends to not flow up. People only want to send good information, sorry, bad information doesn't flow up. He tended to hear the better and better information that went up and he never heard the problems that were really problems at Disney. And he said, I want to avoid that. He said, so you're like nobody, but you're involved in a lot of things because of where my role was. He goes, I'm going to come to you periodically with questions. And one, I want you to only give me the facts and tell me just the data and he was like, I might ask you for opinions, but I want you to tell me what's really going on because I know that people are not, are, the reports I get aren't going to let me know the real opportunities for growth, the real problem. He said, and two, you can't tell anybody in the organization. He said, you can't even tell your wife that we have this relationship because the mo- he knew, I found this out later, he, he knew that as people knew that I was one of those people, it would have changed the information that I got. And so that's what I helped this, this leader start to realize in his organization from a safe perspective. From a serving perspective, a growth perspective, he needed to create an environment where everybody, including sole contributors, but his people felt comfortable bringing up potential problems or real problems or or issues to be discussed so that he could perhaps help them with uh, wisely think that through, but he could at least know what's actually going on. Sometimes the best thing is as a leader is just know there's a problem 
know that a part of your organization has it under control and they don't need, you know what the problem is, which is more information that you had before and that they're going to solve it. And if they need input, they'll come to you on that. Well, that's way different from a leadership perspective than if it's just happening in secret. And so many leaders miss out on the opportunity to get to those information about the problem because they don't make themselves relatable. They don't ask the questions. So curiosity is a word you mentioned today quite a few times, right? Which is needed and being intentional about making the time for it. I'm not saying 24 seven, absolutely not. But what are these key moments in the day that you can use in order to build trust, to build connection and to ask the important questions? And sometimes like for me, the important questions are the environment where especially my direct reports, but sometimes I, I, usually at organizations I'm in, everybody knows anyone can schedule time and come to me. And so, especially like at all hands, one of the big things, and so I did this at a company, I was just leading a a large division for the world's largest uh, real estate company. And then I was also leading a subsidiary. I would lead a a all hands meeting every week. And so even though I had a boss for for this major division, um, I would lead the all hands meeting and everybody it was at the end of every meeting, everybody in the division knew that they could come to me or Scott, they usually ended up coming to me, but they, they could come to me with anything, whether it was affecting their direct manager or not. And I would make, I, I would make it anonymous to be able to come back out to the whole, whole organization. And so some cases when one person tells you something, you just take it as information. When two people hear it, the same thing. when the third person tells you that something's kind of going awry or it's a leader, an issue with a specific manager, well, now it starts to become reality a little bit more and you can go and you, and when you have two or three people, you can usually anonymize things a little bit more to go back and help shape that. Well, that's very important. I think in an organization, not to get people in trouble, but to be able to know where you can coach, where you can not. A couple of people came to me about one person on the team. I'm a, I'm a big believer in hiring people that believe in healthy confrontation among some other traits you would see in them. And somebody was not having healthy confrontation. One, it was often not healthy when they were confronting and it didn't, wasn't a safe environment for people to bring uh, bring up topics, but they they often would would hide things as well from the rest of the organization. And so I, we we talked to this person about that and the, the result ended up being we, we brought in an executive coach just to help guide them through that. It completely transformed. We didn't put them on a performance plan. We, we literally brought in somebody that said, you're, you're great in all these ways. And you're holding yourself back. Are you open to some some help with that? And we invested a good bit of money over like nine months for this person to have one-on-one coaching with somebody to guide them through how to have healthy confrontation. Well, that doesn't happen unless you have an environment where sometimes individual contributors can go around their boss or around their boss's boss. I admire the decision to do that. And yet I'm stepping into healthy confrontation here Yeah, because my experience in business has also been that a lot of managers avoid a healthy confrontation. I'm not saying you did. And bring in somebody else, an external person, to sort out the issue, quote unquote. Right. I, I hear something different, but I would love to delve a little bit deeper into this example. What were the healthy confrontational conversations you have had first? And what led yeah. you to the choice to bring in an executive coach to help the person? So the the healthy conversations that um, often I get uh, I will get in is um, I'll bring up a lot of my one on ones, but I in, in team meetings for different uh, teams. Like I, I had a very large content uh, content team, and so I, I would tend to have a couple of questions at the end of every one of those meetings because I wanted people to be able to bring this up in a group. And sometimes we have conversations one on one. Is 
what gut feeling do you have that that uh, that something may be going sideways or wrong in you know we everybody agrees on what the outcomes are what gut feeling do you have that that something may be um, not sending us to the outcomes as fast or even to a different outcome than we're anticipating and i say gut feelings because especially like for writers which tend to be a little more introverted and, and whatnot it takes a long time. Things have to be really bad or clear to have a this is the problem belief and then bring that up to manager. Saying a gut feeling is like, I can't even fully articulate it. It just, this feels different. Um, and I'll start to dig in from there. But I often will very much uh, ask questions that says, what am I doing wrong that's holding us back? And so how I bring up healthy confrontation with that is I'll bring that up on one-on-ones because uh, sometimes I am the problem as well. But I think when you're the leader, how you help breed that... Um, that the confrontation uh, and for others to do this. And when you're not in the room is when somebody points out that I've done something in some, in some cases, my confrontation is not always healthy feeling. And so, uh, or it'll trigger somebody's PTSD from a bad toxic boss, or somebody will trigger my PTSD basically from a bad, uh, from a bad boss. And it, it becomes a problem once we've made amends. And if I realize I'm the problem at the next all hands meeting, I will bring that up that situation where I was wrong to everybody. Because as a leader, I find people will bring up situations more. They'll bring up issues where you, Kathleen, may show up in a way that, that triggers me in a meeting when the boss keeps pointing out where he or she has screwed that up before. And then sometimes, often, I, you know, I may have heard it from an individual. We made amends. I bring it up in the all-hands meeting, and then I'll bring it up in each of my team meetings as well because I'm continuing to try to reinforce the, hey, we're not we're, we're not all perfect. And the whole point is like, and the issue I have with, with good to great is people have so many cog, so much cognitive dissonance. They have good to great on their shelves, but yet they believe that we should iterate and work in an agile environment. Well, perfectionism and getting it out as quickly the way it tends to swallow doesn't follow with get out something that's ugly in your customer's hands and then listen to them and iterate 18 times until it becomes good enough or really good. Well, those two things are different approaches for how you roll out something. So that's that's maybe an example of the healthy confrontation. So, and on the individual you mentioned about why I brought an executive code for him, yes. I coach a lot. If you go lead my read my recommendations on like LinkedIn from people that have worked directly for me, because not everybody has worked directly for me, they've been just an organization. You'll see I get very involved with coaching people if they report to me. This individual. I don't know exactly what, but it, some of a personality thing maybe, but um, we clashed, um, not all the time. Uh, we had good results and things, but I knew that I wasn't the right person to coach him through. I tried to coach him through some health, uh, ways to deal with healthy confrontation before, and it could have been how I verbalized it. It could have been how he received it, but we had tried that a couple of different times. And instead of being um, well-received and changing things, it actually only made it worse. It made our working relationship worse. And so we had a woman named Julie who uh, I, I bring in usually a, an assessment called the Berkman assessment for every for all of my teams. It's less of a personality exam uh, and more of a communication um, methodology. I do agree with a lot of Berkman, but it gives everybody common terminology to discuss. And so Julie was kind of around in the organization. She would present to us once a month on things. And so I, I asked this individual when I came came back to them with uh, some of this not healthy confrontation that we were having, but he was having with others. And uh, I asked, I said, would, would you be open to, to trying 
talking with, 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 with Julie and letting her coach you on that. And so in that case, I realized I was not part of the uh, solution because from an equation perspective, I was part of the problem anyways. And I just, I mean, we can't coach everybody in a way that, that, that helps them understand. That's totally fair. And actually what I admire about it is we clashed. Clearly personalities are not fully aligned, which happens naturally right. in organizations. I mean, with so many people we encounter and here I am wanting to support you because I believe in you. Our personalities right. might not be, you know, the ones we would attract outside of work, but you are a great guy and you're going to grow. And, and, and there are, I mean, there are, there are people I've, I, we've had issues with before where I think we're, I've coached or, or sometimes we brought in somebody from the outside, whether on a, on a cultural and leadership perspective or on a skills perspective. And there, I mean, there are times you have to let people go. I mean, I have no problem, no problem firing people, but in this case, a, a very good performer. And I, I believe that, that if he made the change, it was going to be very good for his career and very good for our organization to the point that now, I mean, I would work with him again. I, I would hire him again at another company. So. I'm glad to hear that now when you let people go, you still mention their names, you still talk about them and would even welcome right. them back. So a big shift yeah. to your first experience. You mentioned earlier that you see yourself more as an operator. You see certain, I call them screws, you can basically turn around yeah. in order to help organizations grow, scale, succeed. And I, I find that genius. And then you mentioned four to five weeks, uh, hours of work, uh, four to five hours a week that you worked at some stage as well, being successful, achieving goals, being yeah. promoted. And I keep wondering, how does this brain work? Number one, B, being in the driver's seat, helping organizations grow and succeed Sounds to me also like there's a certain sense of control, someone who sees patterns, someone who knows where or what to do, what opportunities to take in order to move forward. Now I come to the actual question. <laughs> that mm -hmm. is, how are you able to let go and indeed help other people take charge? Kind of some of it, as I mentioned about like that audit earlier with this, uh, the, the, the CEO, I know that, I mean, if, if I'm, if I'm writing on my own website, like I'm the only person that can do that. And because I, I don't have a team, I have an editor that, that, that looks at some things, but I mean, the, if it's an organization, especially an organization I come in, I'm not involved in, in most of the decisions, no matter whether you're the CEO or the chief marketing officer, like I, I usually am. So everybody else is making those decisions or they're implementing work. Cause I'm not, you're hiring people. You have dozens of people on your team because there's work to be done that you can't do. The only solution in my mind is to empower them. And so it's more important for me to set up the systems, know what's going on. I always tend to step in and do a lot of work as well, take stuff off people's plates so that I can make sure the machine's still working well. Um, I had a gentleman on my team named Scott Trowbridge. Uh, I used to joke to him. He was, he was one of my operations managers. I helped build the factory. And uh, his job then was to be the factory foreman. He helped lead this massive content and uh, SEO machine factory that I, that we were working with. But I was like, your job then is to be the factory foreman. Make sure everything's working well. Raise your hand to me as the, as the owner of the factory if things aren't working well. While I'm over here mad scientisting um, and creating SOPs for the next line that we're going to bolt onto the factory that I'll give to you once I figure it out. And that worked very well. Because you just can't do everything. And so I'm much, as an operator, 
I'm really good. You mentioned and, um, seeing patterns. I'm really good at systematizing things, documenting stuff in getting a feel for how things are working. It used to be a lot harder. I mean, I mentioned, you know, 14 leading a lawn care business. Well, somebody's lawn gets cut or not, or you get a call like that's kind of self-reinforcing at some size. It like, you, you, you know, you have to have systems in place, but nowadays, I mean, with things like Trello or Monday.com, and it's like, I can log in at any time. I had a content team, internal and external, this large team. We produced 5 million words of original human written AI enhanced content in just 18 months. Like that's an insane amount of content. I mean, I probably read a, a very small number of the actual articles, but I could log in at any time to two different Trello boards and know where any specific piece of content was in the entire factory working through. I couldn't have done that 15 years ago. And so there's tools available now that allow you to see, is the machine, is the factory working well or not? And if it's not, well, then you get to go see where things are kind of backing up as long as you have things documented and tracked well. I hope you have an affiliate contract with Trello the amount of times you have mentioned that one uh, before here or during this conversation. <laughs> so, so you mentioned systemization. Early on in the conversation, you mentioned obviously marketing and the vast sphere of marketing. A lot of people, and I used to be one of them, believed, okay, it's about how many posts you put out there from time to time, engage with the audience, obviously respond to it. But there's so much more to it. What else would you recommend to scaling, growing businesses in order to grow more and to be truly successful? I mean, if you mentioned like posting. So let's just stay with marketing. Um, posting is not marketing. Posting is not growing your business. It may be part of it, but it's like posting doesn't do anything. I mean, I see all these small businesses and sometimes big businesses. Um, I just came from from years in real estate technology. I, there's there's maybe one real estate technology company that has any social presence that anybody actually engages with, but yet they all post a little bit. Great. They're just wasting resources. It's not really helping. And that's like, that's a broad statement, but I mean, I've looked at hundreds of real estate technology companies and, and all of the B2B stuff is pretty much like nobody cares if they post on social or not. They can all just stop and redeploy resources. But like on marketing, too many people, I think on marketing specifically, and it's, it's different whether, you know, whether, whether you're, I mean, clearly, whether you're doing leadership work and coaching work, that's di different than a, a, a big a SaaS business. But people at established companies, if I go look at who they've hired as their chief marketing officer, they've hired the wrong person. They hired the people that were successful 25 years ago. I just finished an engagement with a private equity group, and uh, their 11 CMOs do not uh, of their portfolio companies do not know they're about to be fired. But uh, all all 11 CMOs are going to be replaced in the next year. So we looked through this engagement. And numbers aren't at the aren't going where they would like. And this company has been in the same pattern as they've seen a lot of things where that they replace CMOs every 18 to 36 months. And so you go, why? Well, some cases they have false expectations or that they haven't agreed upon what needs to be done up front. But in this case, every single person they hired was not what I would consider a good marketer today. A good marketer today is somebody that thinks in terms of systems and screws, as you mentioned, and what can you turn directions. And there's somebody that maybe has only actually been a, 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 in, in marketing for the last five or 10 years, actually, because they were a lawyer or a mechanical engineer or software uh, developer before. There's somebody who was trained and or the brain thinks about systems and processes. In this case, the chief marketing officers they had 
they all almost all came from their own agencies or these large agencies in New York or London that, you know, have hundreds of millions of dollars of, of, uh, of business. And so they were basically the old, old ad creatives. Some, like it's nothing to diminish the person that comes up with a catchy slogan or an ad, but that's not marketing today. It's still hard to do it. It's an important work, but modern marketing works on tools. It works on knowing how to run pay-per-click and programmatic ads and like, okay, Maybe I'm going to test things with $5,000 or $50,000. And when it works, I'm going to put $5 million into that ad campaign. Well, that case, I'm not testing a single message. I'm going into it testing 50 messages. Or in the case of programmatic ads, I have general concepts. And the platform, if I know how to use it, allows me to test 5,000 ad components, find out what works best, and then deploy my $5 million. That's not the old style marketer that was an account manager at a big a big ad agency. And so I find that so much of what uh, almost any organization right now, the, the best chief revenue officers were not great outside sales officer or uh, outside salespeople before. They, they were great at managing and leading and seeing systems in people and coaching. And they may not have actually been a good salesperson unto herself. What role does the actual, in marketing language, you might call it avatar, client, customer play in it? So how do you build the resources if you even need it to fully understand the customer, the person you want to reach? Uh, it, it's, critical for, it's critical for me. And it's also, though, how, but it's, it's how you build that avatar. Too often, marketing teams build it unto themselves or the product team builds it unto themselves. And especially at, the, at larger organizations, if you go in and I do an audit, like um, I'm talking to a company right now um, about potentially becoming their, their chief marketing officer, they have three different sets of personas and avatars. And only two of them, if you actually talk to the teams, would they even say that they're an avatar, but there's three sets. There's the marketing th marketing view. And so the, the marketing teams out there, and that's a pretty closely aligned with, with, with the sales view of, of, of who they're trying to reach. Then there's the product view. And the product, uh, the product view is actually a completely different set that the product managers and the chief product officer have put together, which overlaps somewhat, but they're not the same names. They're not the same avatars. There's not agreement between these two, uh, between these two, which is a big problem. You have people marketing and selling perceptions mm -hmm. that have a different set of avatars than the people that are building products at a major software company. And then when I go in and talk to them, I go ask the customer success team and thankfully they do call it a customer success team, not an account management team, not a support team. They're trying to make the customers and the users successful. And they did not acknowledge that they had an a set of avatars. But when I started asking them who uses their product, who are the decision makers, who gets reports about whether or not those product is useful or not, the words that came out of them very clearly started to get into the individual uh, success managers and the and the lead team lead, they have a pretty good set of avatars. It's just nobody's gone to pull it out of there. And I'm like, you all are doing tens of millions of dollars of annual revenue, and and you have three different sets of who you believe decision makers and customers and users because those are all different. You have three different sets of views, and so the the CEO he's like, okay, well, what do I do about it? And I said, you need to figure out, one, who's going to own creating them? And within the company, 
whose voices should be the loudest if when there's if there's disagreement. And uh, so I asked him. I said, well, who, "Who do you think that? Who do you think like should should be the ultimate decision maker?" And he said, "Sales." And I was like, "Huh? I don't think this is going to work for me coming in as your chief marketing officer." He's like, "Why?" And I was like, "Because sales, if you do this right, they they should be more than order takers. They should be relationship builders." But I'm like, "You have a big business. Your customer success team knows who's actually using your product." what they're actually using, what problems they're using. If your product, if your product solves problems, but they're not using it, like they have ground truth for tens of millions of dollars of annual business. And the marketers maybe set up a bad message. The salespeople are selling functionality that doesn't exist together. And the product team, like they're building in some cases what they want to build, or in some cases what the customer is saying they want, which it does is not relevant at all to solving the real problem. There's only one person that has real data here. And that was not what he wanted to hear. So we'll we'll see where that conversation goes between me and him in front of that company. But it's like, for me, like you should have one set of avatars. Everybody should contribute to it. And you do have to think about who's ultimately responsible if there's a disagreement for it. And so for me, it's like, once you have real revenues, the, the customer success team knows what's actually being used or not. And like, it's usually not sales fault. It's usually marketing's fault, actually, if there's bad perceptions. Because sales is only selling features you don't have to avatars that they think exist. If the marketing team is screwed up on the perceptions of selling what the actual problem is, what you actually solve today. And, and there are a few more patterns and formation that I hear that you mentioned throughout this conversation. It is about processes and clarity as well of such clear responsibilities. So systemizing as much as possible, but also making sure people know what they're there to do and to achieve. Right. It, it is about stepping into that leadership. I don't know if it is necessarily servant leadership, how you would call it, but it is about how can we achieve together and have these sometimes right. uncomfortable conversations also about that tackle the negative side of ego. Because we all want to hold right. on to it. We all want to own something, but why? How are we serving each other here with that? And how are we going to contribute to the overall success? So why haven't those conversations happened before? And, and I have assumptions right. given that I worked in, in functions where we didn't talk to marketing. We were relying on they're the experts. They will do it. I have no clue. So it feels uncomfortable to step into that space. I don't want to step on people's toes, right. time, all of this nice stuff that we can uh, come up with here. But I think there's a role to play as a leader. Yeah. And I would say the CEO definitely has a role to play there. But then also the function leaders in those separate functions. So if we were Very to much come so. in as the CMO, what steps would you take? Uh, well, in the case I just kind of uh, the the case I just gave, we'd have avatars and personas created within the first sixty days very quickly. And uh, at that point, I think part of it is there's two bits. There's one. Um, making sure everybody is in vehement agreement of what we're actually trying to achieve from an outcome of the company. Often there's huge disagreement on that. And so what leaders often fail on is helping people understand what the outcomes really are. They'll, they, you know, oh, the outcome is to grow by 5% or 10% or the outcome is to be the industry leader or like things that just like, they're too ethereal. They're not concrete. So we have to come through that agreement. So in this case, like, hey, they're actually the, every once we get everybody to agree, we're actually trying to solve or serve our customers internal. I want people to then agree who internal should we be trying to serve the most? And for me, it would be the customer success team. 
they're onboarding clients or answering support calls. And everybody else's job is to help make their job as easy as possible. Mm-hmm. Because like a lot of what customer success should be doing is upselling clients as well and helping grow the book of business. Well, that naturally happens if you set up good expectations, if uh, you brought in the right clients. And so, but, but it also starts with, let's have agreement who we should be trying to serve internal. And then you go, all right, now there's the more difficult discussions that says, well, how do we serve them? In this organization specifically, I would actually put a lockdown on the sales presentations from having been in there and say, look, sales gets PDFs of the presentation that they're, this is an outside sales organization. They're selling, you know, $50,000 up to about $500,000 a year in annual contracts to people. I would lock down as quickly as possible for the sales team that actually says they cannot make a change to a sales presentation for 90 days. Not that the sales presentation can't change, but sales can't change it because I want marketing to control it because every, I want to hear, I want from a healthy confrontation, I want to know any change of a word, a bullet, a color on a presentation that a sales outside salesperson would like to make, especially the better performing outside salespeople. I want to know what they want to make and I want to know why. Because the why they're wanting to make it is what the marketing team needs to know. The customer success team needs to know. And so you start getting into healthy confrontation, which if you don't take the steps right to establish outcomes, who we're trying to serve internal, why that's important. It feels very heavy handed to come into the sales and somebody who sold $5 million of software last year and you go, yeah, you can't change your presentations anymore. You get a PDF and if you don't give a PDF, you're fired. Like that's going to feel very heavy handed if you start there. But if you explain to them why you're wanting to do that and you have to make margin in the marketing team and the customer success team for those conversations, well, then it works very well because I'm wanting to help you not sell $5 million. I want to help you sell $15 million next year. You'll earn more. The company will earn more. But I need to know what's up here. And so it the whys really matter in that case. I think it's brilliant. I felt for a moment highly uncomfortable um, for my <laughs> own reasons of experiencing that space. But at the same time, my my direction of thinking went into and that requires us to remove ourselves from this is my area of expertise, bug off to right. All right, let's actually listen because that might make sense. And it has some real value right. in it. And get on the same page. And there might still be disagreement. There might still be um may still be different opinions, which is absolutely fair, but we can discuss them more openly and constructively. Yeah. And and if you don't discuss them, it's also letting people realize it says. If these changes are happening without anybody happening, sales, in this case, sales and marketing may be competing with each other. Sales is is making changes that may be a better way of actually marketing and positioning the whole company, but marketing has no idea about it. So they can't scale it and couldn't run with it. On the other side, like this organization as well, a lot of support teams are this way. They're really big on tracking how long our tickets open in Zendesk. They happen to use Zendesk. And I'm like, I don't care how long tickets are open. What I care about is how long before a problem is solved for a customer. And did they get past it? They have to send three tickets because you close the first ticket. That's really one ticket, one time. I, I want to know, I want people to be solved and they want them to feel like we're helping them, not just closing the ticket because, well, I answered your immediate question. Right, me as a customer, completely bananas when that happens. 
um, or I get robotic answers that have no resemblance of my actual problem, uh, stuff like right. that. Well, in some cases, like that's one of the places also where uh, artificial intelligence is really helping right now. I spoke to a company out of Sweden uh, earlier in the week. I'm going to be on their uh, their podcast. They tend to come in on for the finance on financial industries, but they have a product that basically takes all of your knowledge base, all of your internal on, uh, onboarding documents, all of your website content, and they can make that conversational with your clients. And so to some degree for both, whether you deploy that um, in an end industry, customer facing, or you provide that to your support team, it's really hard, especially as a portfolio of products starts to grow for anybody to keep it all in your head. I mean, even me, I realize my shortcomings and things. And so I'll sometimes draft a response and toss it into Slack or uh, somebody else on the team uh, or the whole sh uh, channel. I, I let a large customer success team underneath the subsidiary and so well, I led the whole subsidiary. And so sometimes I'd get the difficult customers. And so I go write the response, but I don't know everything that's going on. So I go draft my response and I toss it into Google Doc with a link into the customer success channel for the whole team that says, I'm responding to Susie. Here's her problem. I need comments in the Google Doc about how this should change. And individual contributors come in then and they're like, well, you can't say this because it's going to be triggering Susie because of other things that's going on. And here's something else going on. And Oh, well, I've already solved this. So you don't need to address that. Like, oh, you you all have way more knowledge than what's going on there. So, uh, but that's also where some of the AI stuff is going to be very interesting for uh, helping guide conversations going forward. Curious about that, but that could take us into a whole additional podcast conversation. So I might just <laughs> listen to the one that you're going to record with that Swedish company. But Kurt, before I let you go, and I, I already envisage you conquering the whole world at some point, what's next on your vision board? What's next up for you? I'm going to end up at another at, at another mid-sized company that's looking to scale. I've tried I've tried just just writing. I've tried just public speaking. I'm actually starting to do much more of that. Um, I had a friend pay for my uh, pay for my uh, annual membership to National Speakers Association and for the state of Georgia forcing me back into public keynote speaking. He's like, more people need to get some of your high achievements over leadership. Mm -hmm. So I, I will be doing more of that in the next year or two. But I, I sincerely believe that both my material that I may, may speak from stage, but also uh, just making it better. It's better when, when you're growing people. It's one thing to be an executive coach, but then you only spend an hour or two hours you know, a month with somebody completely different than when I'm working and uh, leading a gentleman named Michael. And he gets to see the ins and outs of every interaction that we have and what's going on. And I'm trying to multiply myself through those eight to 10 people on the team. Oh, I'm loving this. The multiplier, the promoter of those amazing leadership skills, behaviors and traits. Kurt, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I want you to talk to more people in my network. So do share. Where can people find you? My personal website, Kurt Euler, U-H-L-I-R.com uh, is the best way. I'm writing a lot about high achieving servant leadership. And uh, I almost guarantee if somebody leaves a question uh, on an article, I'll, um, if I don't have it already in, uh, covered, I will write an article or do a podcast about it. Loving this. And I would highly recommend to all of you out there who are looking for an engaging speaker to talk about servant leadership, technology, innovation, growing businesses, building great businesses and so much more um, to get in touch with Kurt and let him know, have a chat. And for all of you out there, 
I am very curious about your insights. What was the one key point that you took away from this conversation today? Let me know. And I'm looking forward to all your messages as well. Thank you again, Kurt. Have a wonderful day. It looks stunning behind you. Enjoy family time and business time there. And I'm looking forward to speaking to you again in the future. Yeah, this was great. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. Perhaps you have some ideas for additional topics, something that you're truly curious about. Please do leave your review on Apple Podcasts as well. It would mean the world to us. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Take good care. Bye.